Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello and welcome to Pod's Own Country, the Yorkshire Post political podcast. I'm Rob Parsons, the Yorkshire Post political editor, and as we finally bask in a bit of much-needed summer sun, thank you for joining us uh, for another half an hour of political chat and analysis about Yorkshire and the North. Our guest today is a fascinating interviewee, Andy MacDonald, who, as well as being Labour MP for Middlesbrough, is also Shadow Secretary of State for Employment Rights and Protections. He'll be taking us through his journey from being a lawyer representing injured members of the armed forces, to his current role trying to protect workers' rights and job security in an era of dramatic changes to the way we work. You'll even hear a bit about the spoof punk band he played in at Leeds Polytechnic as a young man, which I don't think is a life experience many senior politicians can talk about. But first, let's get up to speed with one of the political hot potatoes that many readers of the Yorkshire Post will be well familiar with, uh, because things have, have moved on quite a lot in recent weeks in this area. The Sheffield Tree Saga, where the cutting down of healthy street trees across the steel city prompted outrage from everyone from Jarvis Cocker to Michael Gove, has been a thorn in the side of Sheffield City Council for a number of years now. And someone who knows the ins and outs of it better than pretty much anyone is Chris Byrne, Deputy Features Editor of the Yorkshire Post, who joins us today. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Rob. How are you? Very good. Very good. Thank you. Um, You've been writing about Sheffield Trees for as long as I can remember. Uh, How did you end up first covering this uh, for the Yorkshire Post and other titles that you've written for? Well, I I previously worked for the Sheffield Star and the issue had kind of been... um sort of going along for a little while. Um, and just before I joined the Yorkshire Post at the start of 2017, I covered um, a big protest at Rustlings Road, um, where hundreds of people turned out at, at the weekend protest against what the council had done the week, a couple of days before, where they turned up at five o'clock in the morning to chop down a series of trees and it ended in, in protests and a few pensioners being arrested. Um, and when I came to the Yorkshire Post after getting a job on the features team, um, I suggested that the tree campaign, which was kind of at that stage starting to gather a bit of momentum, partly as a result of what had happened on Rustlings Road, might make an interesting feature. And the question that I was really interested in was why were a group of previously sort of law-abiding citizens so passionate and so interested in this issue uh, that they were potentially willing to be arrested, potentially go to jail to save a tree. And I thought that was a really interesting question. Um, and so sort of spoke to a few of the, kind of the founders of, of what was known as the STAG campaign group, which is the Sheffield Trees Action Groups. That's what it stands for. Um, and kind of from that point on, that feature led to further stories, further tip-offs, and it kind of ended up being particularly in sort of early 2018 it ended up being a kind of an all-encompassing 
reporting job because by sort of early 2018, the situation had deteriorated to the point where there sort of dozens of police officers going out to support the, the felling operations. Um, and when you kind of took a step back from it, the situation was you had 50 police, well, 30 police officers, 30 private security guards turning out to cut down a tree. And whatever you think about the rights and wrongs of the, the felling and whether it actually needed to happen, something's gone terribly wrong along the way to get to that point to cut down one tree in the, in the street in Sheffield. Yeah, I remember some of the pictures and images coming back from some of the protests and there were some pretty extraordinary scenes weren't there and it, it, particularly for it to happen in a uh, an English city in in uh, in the 20 21st century seemed uh, extraordinary and quite a lot of people were arrested weren't they it was it was a pretty big like the police operations were a pretty big big deal at the time yeah i mean um particularly in early 2018 it seemed like there was arrests at almost every single protest um i think the vast 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 majority of which never ended up in anyone being charged um but it was getting and it got extremely heated um and just became this kind of massive issue and sort of the snowball effect and the whole the story was covered in like the New York Times, it was on TV across the world. And it was just it was just kind of a, an extraordinary time and a very strange time. Yeah, absolutely. So where are things up to now? Because things have there have been some developments in the last few days and weeks, haven't there? So um so there's basically um, after sort of March 2018, the council changed course and they're now uh, adapting an approach that's sort of much more in line with what the campaign is hoped for, which is basically not to remove a tree unless there's really solid reasons to do so and to investigate other ways they can kind of like, even if it's like changing the pavement and stuff like that, just relatively simple engineering fixes. Um, but one of the big things that the campaigners have been pushing for and is now on the horizon is an inquiry into kind of how it all happened and effectively what went wrong. Um, and um, since um, the May local council elections where Labour, um, who had been in charge while, while kind of the the, the saga was, was unfolding, Labour lost um, overall control of the council and now in kind of this... I, I can't remember precisely the term they're using, but effectively they're in a coalition with the Green Party. Um, one of the outcomes of that was an agreement that an inquiry will would be ordered and is going to start at some point later this year. Right, right. So, I mean, I, I've I've seen it written that there's sort of a, a link between the, the the tree saga and the sort of uh, the the controversy that that uh, prompted and the election results and sort of you know looking back at results before this year like Labour had been sort of a losing like losing ground at each election but can you kind of draw the line between what's been going on with the trees and the the current composition of the council? So uh, I think you can obviously with caveats that you never really fully know why people vote the way they do Um, but I think it has kind of undermine trust in the council um, and last October um, the local government ombudsman put out a report which a very damning report of the council which the council ended up doing an apology to the city for 
where they effectively found that the council had been misleading people about how their tree felling strategy actually worked. Um, so it's undermined confidence. Obviously, it's difficult to say there's a precise link between that and people voting a separate way. But one thing that definitely was a link between was um, one of the outcomes of the, the tree campaign was the setting up of a group called It's Our City, um, who um, basically called for and got a referendum to change the way the council operates. And that was on the ballot paper in Sheffield uh, in May. Um, and basically there was a pretty massive majority in favour of changing the way the council operates. So it's now run, um, or it will be run, as committee systems rather than the strong leader system, which it was under before, and which the, the, some of these campaigners argue um, was partly responsible for kind of this wrong-headed approach that was taken on the tree situation. Um, and there's a very direct line between the tree campaign and that referendum result. And I think it's possibly fair to say that those campaigning for that may not have anticipated that the council would all also fall into no overall control at the same time. So you've you've got this strange situation now in Sheffield where you've got no party in overall control, but the and next year, well, in the in the next sort of next 12 months, they've got to come up with a committee system to to run the council under a very different model. So it, it definitely has changed politics in Sheffield, without a doubt. So the, the situation now in terms of who makes decisions at Sheffield City Council is very different to the situation that was in place during the period when the trees saga was going on. So with that being the case, and you know the fact that there's an inquiry which will be reporting back at some point, I, I assume we should expect that there will, we will be hearing more on the tree saga, but that the council will be very much trying to say this was something that happened in the past and we're very much a new a new organisation now? Well, yeah, I mean, um, as well as the political changes, there's also been a change of chief executive um, and some some of the officers who were involved in kind of the tree felling policies at the time have, have moved on. Um, so I think there is some legitimacy in saying things have changed, but I think kind of the big probably behind the scenes battle now um, before the inquiry starts is what its terms of reference are going to be, how broad it's going to be in looking at. Uh, so, for example, um, hundreds of thousands of pounds of public money were spent on various court cases by the council uh, on this in terms of getting um, sort of a special order in place um, to prevent tree felling protests directly under trees, special injunction, um, and also prosecuting or attempting to, to send to jail under sort of high court action um, some of the protesters they said who'd breached, um, breached that injunction. And there's question marks over, over whether they're going to look at the evidence the council gave to, to those court hearings. Um, most recently, there's been question marks about how Sheffield Council officers dealing with the tree stuff were marking FOI, marking emails between each other is not subject to freedom of information requests, which the council has has already admitted um, wasn't right in some instances that they were doing that and have brought in a law firm to look at that sort of separate to the inquiry. And there's a question mark as to whether any findings from that then go into the inquiry. Um, and then there's also the question of kind of who was who was making these decisions behind the scenes? Was this politically driven? Was this officer driven? What was kind of going on? 
to, to make this happen. So there's, there's kind of lots of question marks about how the inquiry is going to work, who even is going to run the inquiry. Um, so it's one that's definitely not going to go away. No, absolutely. It'll be keeping you in, in stories for a few months yet, I, I would yes. imagine. <laughs> Thank you so much for that, Chris. Uh, that is extremely interesting stuff. So um, now let's hear a bit from this week's guest. Now, it's no secret that it's been a tough few weeks for Labour and listeners to this podcast will have heard how in Rotherham, the local Tories have shot up from zero councillors to 20 in one go, uh, reflecting the results of what were uh, quite a poor local elections for Keir Starmer and his team. But there's still two or three years left until the likely next general election. And one man who wants to help Labour's fight back in its northern heartlands is our guest today, Andy MacDonald, who is the MP for Middlesbrough and since April last year has been Labour's Shadow Secretary of State for Employment Rights and Protections. Um, Andy's main area of work is going to come into sharp focus in the coming months, I think, as regions like Yorkshire emerge from the pandemic with the prospects of a dramatic shift in the type of work that we all do and possible threats to workers' rights in the form of the so-called gig economy. So there's a lot to talk about. Um, Andy McDonald, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. No problem at all. Now, before we get into uh, the, the meat of the topic, Andy, for people who don't know you, uh, tell us a bit about your background, because prior to getting into politics, you did some uh, very interesting work as a, a solicitor in this part of the world. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. Uh, well, I um, specialised in a few areas, uh, uh, principally around people who sustained uh, very serious injuries, brain injury and spinal cord. Uh, but I found myself, by dint of accident really, um, specialising in looking after members of our armed forces, uh, of all three services. And that was a real privilege and eye-opener to um, uh, get into their world uh, and try to help them in circumstances where they were offering very great difficulties, having uh, felt rather abandoned uh, in their uh, plight. Um, so that was a, a quite a turn uh, for me as a, as a career point. Uh, but I'd also acted as a special advisor to the Defence Select Committee, trying to bring in a, a better armed forces compensation scheme. So uh, it's perhaps not the career that people would have imagined of a, uh, of a, of a constituency Labour MP, but um, yeah, it, it was a really good career. And I enjoyed every minute of it, really, uh, and especially the latter part, um, trying to turn people's lives around. Um, and it was a real privilege to do it. Yeah, and, and and so what took you from that into uh, in, in, into party politics? Well, I, I'd always been. I, I came to the party in 1979, inspired by um, one Margaret Thatcher and her uh, uh, inspiring talk on the foot, on the steps of Downing Street, promising all manner of things of of light where there's darkness, hope where there's despair. And I thought, well, that ain't true. Um, I need to be doing something about it. Um, and I came into politics then. Uh, was a councillor for a short period in the 90s um, and worked behind the scenes locally. Uh, and when my predecessor uh, sadly passed away, um, I was propelled into the candidacy and the election in uh, 2012. So that's the sort of thumbnail sketch of how I came to be here. But I was a partner uh, in Thompson's, a, a trade union firm. So it's firmly rooted in the labour movement. Uh, and the plight of uh, working people has always been uh, the, the burr under my saddle. And um, it's it's come full circle. And I'm now hopefully in a position 
to formulate policy to address some of those deficits. So it seems to have been a virtuous circle that's uh, uh, has come all the way around to me. So I'm 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 really pleased to be doing this particular job. Yeah, and we'll we'll get back to uh, some of those issues uh, shortly. To, to go on a, a very brief tangent, um, word reaches me that you have a, a bit of a connection with the Yorkshire Post in that you used to be in a, a rock band with a former editor of this newspaper. You, you, you have to tell us about that. Well, yeah, I was at Leeds Poly um, doing my law degree. My big brother's pal, Paul, Paul Vallely, was, uh, I think he was assistant editor or deputy editor of the Yorkshire Post. I'm not quite sure. But anyway, he was given the job of, or he came up with the idea of a, a spoof uh, punk band uh, and the sort of the, the prerequisite that people came with very little talent to the band, with maybe three or four chords, bad voices, and no sense of rhythm. But then the night had to keep it together somehow. So they brought some one or two people in with a, a, a modicum of ability uh, to try to make mm. a sound. But it was just remarkably successful. That was the bizarre thing, um, principally because Paul quite cynically wrote a song called You Ken John Peel. And John Peel just played it on Radio 1 all the time. And so the sales went up. And we gigged around the Yorkshire area with our uh, fake uh, ear piercings. They're, they're all clip-ons, by the way. And um, and then, you know, it was quite ridiculous. We gigged with John Cooper Clark and other people. and But I think we were we were rumbled eventually. Uh, they thought we, we weren't the real thing. We weren't authentic, well, especially when we took our clip on um earrings out and all the rest of it so um but it was great fun it was it was the most ridiculous fun uh, and i enjoyed it i'm a many a night in brannigan's in leeds that people is it still there brannigan's is it still going as you a know club? What? I'm, I, I'm not sure to my shame it's because because of the pandemic it's been a while since i've actually been into uh into been clubbing leeds yeah. Leeds yeah. Or, or, or clubbing in fact as a yeah. parents of two small children uh, I, I will get back to you on that one but um <laughs> well so it sounds like you've you've had a, a, an interesting and diverse um career so under jeremy corbyn you were shadow transport mm. secretary and um so obviously the role you have now is very is very different what's been your main sort of focus in your brief since you took over uh last april yeah well well jeremy en uh, engrossed the role of a shadow secretary of state for employment rights and protection so my predecessor was laura pidcock and and she did a, a, a terrific amount of work. Then uh, uh, her immediate uh, uh, successor was uh, Rachel Maskell, who continued at York MP. Um, but it was principally around the redressing of the balance in the workplace because it's shifted so significantly that we we need to look at the uh, power of working people themselves, whether the laws and protections are fit for purpose, and and what was uh, uh, started uh, under Laura was a complete revision of, of where we should be, basically mirroring what happens in other jurisdictions in the United States, in Spain, um, right across uh, the developed world. There are ministries of labor responsible for making sure that we've got a proper regime to protect working people and the ability to enforce it. Um, so it's been a, a perfect post for me, uh, given my uh, uh, migration through my uh, legal career, which w was which pivoted around health and safety at work, obviously given the the work that I did. Uh, but it was like engagement with trade unions and knowing the good that they can do uh, for working people. So we are now continuing with that um, that that uh, that body of work, 
uh, and adopting the 2019 manifesto as the platform, the building blocks to build upon as we develop policy going into the next election. So it's an absolute joy of a job to do. So to, to put some of that into uh, sort of more more specific, so under a, a Labour government, if you were to get in, in in the next election, what how would you want to change uh, employment uh, policy as, as it stands at the moment? Well, at the moment, we see from, if we just look at the world of work as it's presenting through this pandemic, I mean, the pandemic has exacerbated existing weaknesses in the employment environment. So you will see the growth of the, the gig economy, where we've seen people have to battle to secure the most basic of workers' rights. And I, and I stress workers' rights as opposed to full employment rights, and have to battle through the courts uh, for years and years to establish the most basic protections. Um, that's one aspect to it. So this gig economy that's grown leaves people in fragile and insecure employment, and there isn't enough in that upon which they can base a, a, a good and decent life for themselves and their families. Um, so that's a, a specific area of, of great interest. Of course, we've seen the exponential growth in fire and rehire that's, that's in, in, infected every sector of our economy where people uh, are, are sacked uh, or threatened with uh, losing their jobs unless they accept lower terms and conditions, so lower pay, longer hours. Uh, and it's a scourge at the moment, but it just demonstrates and reveals the, the imbalance in the workplace, the inability of working people to have power and a stake in their own future. And that's fundamentally uh, the illustration of what we're trying to achieve. We're trying to redress that and so that we've got a better social partnership between government, between unions and companies to make sure that people are genuinely uplifted because those sorts of policies are not only, or the ability for people to, to, to abuse working people like that, is just morally indefensible and, of course, economically illiterate. If we're going to build back better, we don't do it by making working people poorer and more insecure in their work. So that's broadly what we're trying to achieve with this uh, programme of work. And to do that, you need to roll back the, uh, the, the, uh, the restrictions around trade unions you need to revisit the principles of collective bargaining across our uh, uh, economy. Um, if you look, for example, at the care sector, we are also full of admiration for those who are delivering care in our care homes. But look at the rates of pay that those people who do the most important job that anybody, anybody could do for another human being, and yet they're paid so poorly and their, their employment is so insecure. That simply cannot be right. We need to deliver dignified, decent, good work for people so that they can not only make ends meet, but have a good life. Uh, and surely that redistribution of power and wealth is to everybody's benefit. So that's the sort of uh, broad framework of what we're undertaking at the moment. I guess there'll be people listening to this who think uh, that what you've described sounds sounds great, but they might remember, you know, the, the decades gone past when trade unions uh, have 
had a lot more clout than they do now and you know the 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 relatively poor way in which the UK's economy functioned at that time like do do you think that there's a, a balance to be struck between giving uh, uh, trade unions more power and you know still allowing businesses and the economy to operate with enough sort of flexibility to, to you know to create jobs and to to and to to sort of boost economic growth well you've got to remember the the word flexibility is 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 does an awful lot of work because within flexibility there is great insecurity for other people so and and this isn't about um a battle it's about a collaboration and a cooperation between business and trade unions because you say for example just look at the way in which this dreadful fire and rehire uh, scandal has developed um trade unions are adept at adapting to change uh if they're given sufficient notice and consulted early enough they can work together i give you the example of ryanair they have uh faced an economic uh crisis as as every other airline during this uh, pandemic but they had the wit to sit down with their staff very early engage with the trade unions and negotiate a settlement that would sustain the business people would have to take a step back temporarily but once fortunes were restored they could then revert to decent terms and conditions now that gives you an illustration of modern trade unions uh with the focus on the success and the lo- long-term sustainability of the very company that they work from it gives them a stake uh, and an interest in making sure that that company survives and thrives and surely that's a better way to go about it rather than the current conflict and the whip hand of the master and servant relationship where one party can change the terms and conditions of the contract unilaterally that isn't good it doesn't happen in other countries and i don't see why we should tolerate it here with there is much better arrangements in places like germany where workers have uh, uh, seats and votes on boards and how to how the company runs and engages that's infinitely better but it this isn't this isn't asymmetrical you've got lots of companies who are, are more than willing to embrace this culture and do already uh, i've got companies in my own uh, 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 neck of the woods and you've got national companies that have these sorts of arrangements in hand and want to engage in this agenda they want to make progress both for the moral reasons of doing it doing it but for their own economic interests and long-term sustainability so it's a shared agenda uh, but we just need to ensure that we articulate the arguments well enough and that they are attractive to people because you know unionized workplaces produce better pay for people they are safer and provide more secure employment so it's a win-win uh, for all of us if we can a- achieve these sorts of outcomes okay now um obviously the pandemic has resulted in huge changes in all kinds of different areas and i think uh, you know the type of work that people in yorkshire will be doing in the coming years maybe one of those areas that the pandemic has uh, has has changed and you know there's there's looking forward into the long term there's all this talk about the sort of green revolution and getting more people into into green jobs does 
I mean, do, do you foresee that the types of jobs people in our region and in you know in Northern England in general are going to have is going to change quite a lot in the years to come? And does that present any challenges in terms of you know employment rights and the things that you're that you're interested in? I think the green agenda presents some really exciting opportunities for for us uh, in the in the country uh, to include the north of England and you know we 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 look to our east coast as an energy coast and think of all the 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 energy generation that can come from wind farms and the like there's the hydrogen economy carbon capture utilization and storage and i i know very well working with northern gas networks on their h21 project some years ago leeds itself uh, as a city is, I think by now, just about 100% plastic underground for the transmission of gas. If we can make that uh, transition uh, from natural gas to hydrogen, uh, just think of the, 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 the employment opportunities that that will bring, not only in the production of hydrogen and the transmission of hydrogen, but then all of the work of, uh, you remember the days when we changed from town gas to natural gas? And uh, there were hundreds of people employed in installing, building, and installing new boilers. This is a this is a, a a virtuous circle of of good outcomes in terms of work and quality of work. So the north is in a, a particular particularly well placed position because you've got Teesside, my my part of the world, where you've got fifty percent of the of the uh, of the UK's uh, hydrogen produced. Leeds as a city could be the very first city in. Uh, uh, Europe to uh, uh, become uh, dependent upon hydrogen as opposed to natural gas. It would be emissionless in terms of its heat uh, 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 heating of homes. It would be a remarkable achievement, but also um, a, a wonderful opportunity for, for working people. The important thing is that when we invest in these technologies, it's got to be for the benefit of those working people. It cannot be that they are just left to uh, pick up whatever uh, the financial rewards are that are on offer. They've got to have a say in this. Otherwise, we don't get the benefits rippling out into our wider economy. Yeah. Absolutely. I think, yeah, the, the, the Leeds Hydrogen Project is a, a massively uh, exciting one. Um, it really I'll is. Just, yeah. I'll, I'll just um, conclude, uh, Andy, with just a, a, a sort of party political question, if I if I yeah. may. Obviously, um, you know, you're, you're uh, a northern MP, you'll have been out knocking on doors uh, in in the local elections and in in 2019. The 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 consensus from people that I've been speaking to is that in recent years, Labour ha, amongst Northern voters has uh, there's now a perception that it, it's not the party for them anymore, and it's too London focused, too city focused. It's lost touch with the sort of traditional. Labour heartlands in 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 towns uh, across northern England, and it needs to do something different to get them back. Would you concur with that sentiment, or do you think that is that unfair? No, I th I think I do agree with that. That's a big challenge for us, and I I'm applying my mind to that all of the time. And I, I look at some of the ways in which that we've traditionally engaged with people uh, um, out of uh, election time, and then in the lead up to elections. And I do uh, challenge myself as to whether that is either relevant or productive. And I'm, I'm of the view that we have to be there in our communities talking to uh, people about the issues that they're interested in. It's not good enough 
for us to simply sit in our offices and uh, and work out what we think is in, in people's best interest. We've got to go and talk to them and listen to what they have to say. And I think there's a real appetite in the labour movement to be re-energised because that's where we came from. Uh, that's how we, we, we became a political force. And we've got to renew that and do it again. Uh, there's a m massive appetite amongst the membership to do that, but they, we need to be able to deliver the means for them to, to, to actually engage in that way. So I'm really excited because of the, what we don't have is pots of money and wealthy donors to help us do it. But what we've got is much better than that. We've got thousands and thousands of members with incredible talent and ability, but their energy and, and determination to bring about a better world and we need to harness that and get engaged in our communities and have that voice uh, 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 heard from the grassroots. And we need to reflect that back in on the policies that we develop for the benefit of the people we want to serve. Andy McDonald, thank you very much for speaking to us today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Podzone Country and do leave us a review on whichever service you get your podcast on if you'd like to hear more from us and we'll see you next time. Thank you very much.